Welcome to this damp and misty episode of About the Adventure podcast. My guest is Peter Morton, an outdoor educator with a passion for bushcraft and wilderness skills. I ask him why he left his IT job, if he's happy with the decision he made and how he started his family business, Red Oak Bushcrafts. At the end, he asks a great question for you to think about your own career change. Sit back and listen to the rain. Imagine you're sitting underneath the tarp with us, watching the mist roll over Kinder Scout while surrounded by snow. We've got a couple of new courses coming on this year. We've got some introduction to lacto-fermentation course, sauerkraut, kimchi and kombucha. And wow, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually been led by a friend of mine because he, he's been doing it for years, but we're, we're doing that because it kind of fits in with potentially the wild food side as well uh, and it's also very healthy and then we've got a bone tools course as well which is another new one this year you know using animal bones to create things like needles harpoons and, and things like that and, and using it using stones to abrade them into shape and, and such like all good fun the stuff you're learning as well yeah I, I did some last year and i've been sort of working away at it but again on the bone tools side i've got somebody coming in who's very very good at it and yeah, I'm going to increase my learning from that as well. It's just sort of getting different courses out there because we're starting to build a bit of a, a not so much a following, but we're getting people coming back on courses. And so they're, they're regularly asking sort of what's next. So we need to keep on sort of bringing new fresh stuff through. And it's good because it all ties together in some way or other, you know, sort of the ancient crafts and such like are a real passion of mine. And I've come into it a bit late, really. <laughs> Never too late. Never too late, but... I could have had more time with it. <laughs> How do you find it in terms of constantly being in front of people and groups? Do you find that challenging? Not particularly. Not if I know the, the subject. You know, if I'm comfortable with the subject, I'm happy to deliver it. And I do get people saying, you know, you're obviously passionate about it, which I am. You know, I'm passionate about getting people outside, getting people to understand the environment as opposed to just be in the environment the tree ID, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's all part and parcel of it and, and the things that you can... Because it all connects as well. So looking at a tree now, you can tell that it's, it is it is starting to come to spring because the buds are coming out and, and the birch in front of us is starting to get the little catkins appearing, which is a sign of spring. Uh, but also the birch tree connects with fire lighting because the birch bark has got natural oils in it, which when they're dried, you can be, help you start a fire really well. You can tap into the, just through the, the bark itself at about a two, three week window at the end of February, start of March, where you can tap birch sap out. And so if you were short of fluids, you can get fluids fairly, not fast, but you can get fluids and you get a bit of carbohydrate sugar from it as well. So, and, and that's been said to be quite a, a healthy drink because it's natural and it's a natural sugar as opposed to pure, you know, purified cane sugar and such like. Uh, but it's all those little connections that that one thing can lead you in so many different directions, which I find fascinating. What do you see is the impact on the people that come on your courses? Positivity. No matter what the weather, they always seem more relaxed. Green light is known to be a really good calmer and relaxer. And yeah, even if we've had a really wet day in the woods, people, unless they're absolutely soaking wet and freezing cold, generally speaking, they're going away with a smile on the face. 
because they've learnt something, but it's they feel revitalised from being in the woodland all day. And you know, if we're going on the canoe courses, you get more of that because you're, you're travelling places, you're seeing different things. We're putting it into physical practice as opposed to trying it and giving it a go in, a, in our day camp. It becomes a real-world experience. People can take that away and get that, that G up of the fact that I can do this. I not so much survive, but I, I can light a fire in rubbish conditions. I can tidy that fire away to leave no trace so that people won't notice that I actually have been here before, which is massively important. Those sorts of things that sort of really ignite me is, is then walking away in, with a bit of knowledge uh, that they may well go and use again. Quite often they may not, but they've got that little bit of information or a large amount of information and they can do something with it if they choose to as opposed to sitting at home. Did you feel reignited by these things when you were in... Because you were working in IT as an IT manager. What was it that reignited it for you that went right? <laughs> uh, going on some of the courses, but, I mean, I've always been an outdoors person, so even when I was doing the IT, I was climbing, and we were, I was out in the hills, mountaineering and such like, and, and that's why I chose going down the outdoor education line, because when I left school, I had no qualifications other than the, the standard bits of paper but certainly not enough to go, I can do this, that and the other. And I had no interest in university. So it was definitely a case of what can I fall back on, something that I actually had some kind of qualifications in already. I needed more qualifications, but it was something I, I knew about and I was able to deliver. So, you know, being in the rescue team at the time, I spoke to people in the rescue team who were working in the industry and they all said, yes, we'd employ you, but you need more qualifications. So it was that. Uh, so when I jumped ship from doing the IT, it was a case of I jumped ship to go and do outdoor education, but I also went to freelance in doing some IT stuff as well to pay the bills and was fortunate that I bumped into somebody uh, who lives in Buxton you know, six months after a jump ship who had lost two staff, had his own IT company, uh, and so I did a lot of work for him for a number of years. So that sort of tidied me over until I had all the qualifications and was really well employable which made a big difference and I've not really done any IT in 10 years or so now, which is great. <laughs> did, did you feel impatient? Did you feel like, oh, I don't want to have to do this freelance work anymore? Or did you just feel like you knew where you were heading and you were just... <laughs> did I know where I was heading? Um, <laughs> I'm just assuming this. <laughs> I, I don't think I've ever really had a, a map of what I'm going to do. It's... You know, it was a case of when I was thinking of leaving the IT side, uh, my boss was really supportive in fairness. There was only one channel I could go, which was outdoor education, which I did enjoy. In the IT side, I also did all of the training of new people into the company, so I had a training background as well. So it kind of it was a natural thing was to, to try and do outdoor ed because I, it's the only thing I could think of, as opposed to totally retraining and having no money at all. And then yeah, things have just fallen into place. So yeah, it's it's definitely not been a case of in the next five years I, I am going to do this. It's been a case of I need to do this, that and the other to, to get qualifications to make me more employable in the outdoors. And then things have just fallen in and have gone, yeah, bush trap. Yeah, I really like that. That's going to be for me and we'll take that further. And then the canoeing slotted into that as well. So when you left your job in IT, well, when you left it as a full-time job, did you... Was it like a sudden decision? Did something trigger it in particular? Or were you creeping there slowly? <laughs> I was probably creeping unknown towards the cliff. It was my boss in the IT side. He turned around to me one day and said, look, you're not happy, are you? 
what do you want to do? And you know, I'd worked for him for 18 years at that point. Uh, and at the time, my immediate thought was, you're trying to get rid of me. And I've worked <laughs> for you for 18 years. But actually, he was doing it for the right reasons. He was doing it for me and for the business. You know, I wasn't being as effective. And it, it made me stop and think. And we, we hatched an escape plan. And they say he was really supportive. So over the next, so that'd be like sort of two years, over the next six, eight months or so, it was a case of, you know, where, where do you want to go? What do you want to do? How, how are you going to make it? He was prompting me to actually, A, make a decision, but also make sure I was making the right decision for me that I wasn't going to fall flat. And one of the last things before I finished with him, he, he said to me one day, sort of, so what do you want from me when you leave? So what do you mean? Well, I'm losing my IT manager, you know, no matter how well you document it, and I know you'll document it well, there's always going to be some things that are in your head that aren't going to be documented. So I would have thought you'd be trying to tie me into some sort of support contract. So I went, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, for the first two months, I was on a three, three days a week for him. Then the next two months, two days a week, and then a, a, week, a day a week ongoing for, it was about another six, eight months. So he was kind of offering me a lifeline. It's a great boss. He was, yeah. And you say at the time when he, he first broached it, I thought, git. Yeah. <laughs> but no, he, he was really supportive. And I really respect what he did for me. And what do you think he picked up on? What did he see? You said that you weren't as effective. What do you think that looked like to him? What was happening to you at the time? I think I was probably a lot more grumpy. <laughs> and, and just not doing it as efficiently as I had been. As IT gets better, you know, there was less time that I spent fixing things, which is what my forte was, was making things work. So company was downsizing a bit, so I got pulled into doing a bit of marketing and stuff, which really wasn't my bag at all. And he obviously knew, saw that. And how did you actually feel about the changes? Because 18 years, not just in one, you know, in a particular industry, but in the company, how did it feel for you to be making such a big change, even if it was quite steady? So this was it's about 18 years ago now, so I'm having to dread yeah, this. I'm pretty sure, actually, it was kind of like a weight off my mind. Mm-hmm, that's but good. Yes, he's right. I, I'm not as effective. I'm not happy. What should I do about it? And let's make some changes. And I suppose the, the real proof of that is the fact that a month after I handed my notice in, Nicola, the wife, said she was pregnant. <laughs> so it was a case of, uh, have I done the right thing? Yeah, must have because she's pregnant. So <laughs> That's incredible. And that must be a, a plus sign. And do you think you would have stayed there a lot longer without your boss giving you the nudge? I probably would because I probably wouldn't have noticed as much. I, w- I wouldn't have noticed as quickly. So you know, I'm, I'm really thankful that he did because... It just wouldn't have been as, as enjoyable. And yes, it's been tough to start off with, but I'm certainly enjoying it now, full time. Do you think it was partly just the routine of the day-to-day? That and probably uh, as IT got better, my knowledge probably didn't keep up with it. And so therefore it was probably more frustration about the fact I didn't know how to do something. And OK, Google is, is great. You can Google things left, right and centre. But if you haven't got the basis for... Um, what Google is telling you. It, it becomes hard and it becomes frustrating. So I was probably out of my depth. It's probably a good way of looking at it, actually. And looking back now, are you pleased that you've taken these steps towards what you're doing now? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't have changed the thing. I have to say it's the second best thing 
I've done in my life. First best obviously is meeting the wife. But yeah. <laughs> as I'm recording this, I have to say that first. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll edit that bit out, so you just say it without... <laughs> no, I said it when she's around anyway, so... <laughs> oh, no, that's lovely. Do you feel... Do you feel like it takes a lot of courage to leave something behind and to oh, yeah. start to qualify in things that maybe, like you say, you sometimes think you've maybe left it too late and that type of thing? Yeah, definitely. I guess it depends on the age you are. You know, it was 18 years ago I did it, so I was early 40s. So not that old. I couldn't do it now. I'm 60 this year, so you know that's a big turning point. But there was a, a degree of unknown, but I've also got a very supportive family. So I would never have... I would have struggled, but I wouldn't have... We wouldn't have been kicked out of the house. There would have been support there if we needed it. And there was support there when we did need it. So that's the wonderful thing about families, isn't it? That you, if they're supporting you, you can do all sorts of things. Either the family you're actually living with at the time or the extended family. And which parts of your work do you absolutely love? <laughs> See, when, when I ask this sort of question to kids when we're, we're working with them, I say, you must give me one answer. But actually... I don't know if I can, because when kids ask me what activity do you enjoy the most, it's usually the one I'm doing at the time, unless they're a really bad group, which <laughs> is very, very rare. But yeah, it, it, because I like to think I put my heart and soul into it, that if I'm not as passionate as I can be about the activity I'm delivering at the time, it's not going to be as good. But certainly the, the ones that the one that really ticks the box and has done for the last few years is the canoe expeditions because you're, you're going out, your journey, it's the journey. You know, with mountain biking, it's the journey. It's not just the skills walking, it's the journey you're going on. It doesn't matter if you're only going five kilometres, it's the journey you take and what you see on that journey that are the important bits. Uh, so certainly for the canoeing side, it's, it's the journey and the, immersing yourself in, in nature, the wildlife, uh, and you know, sort of noticing things, taking the slow track as opposed to busy, 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 getting from A to B as fast as you can. It's slowing things down so that actually you notice things and you take them in. Do you find that people really bond on those trips? Yeah. Yeah, we've had some fantastic uh, laughs on that. It's fair to say that Dan and my sense of humour is very similar and revolves a lot around dad joke type stuff. Um, <laughs> so you have to have a similar sort of sense of humour to be able to like it. But most people tend to in the outdoors anyway. I think we're all fairly similar on a sense of humour level. It's just that some of us are worse at it than others. <laughs> <laughs> so on those trips, are you you're canoeing and are you, are you cooking? Yeah. Uh, cooking together and wherever possible, cooking on open fire. And we we always cook the evening meal as a team. So if there's yeah, and that can get complicated if there's food intolerances and or you know different things that people can and can't have. But you know, typically first night we'll probably do something like a venison stew. So it's a really hearty meal around the campfire, and it doesn't take a lot of cooking. You just leave it ticking over while you you're making camp, and then everyone's ready for something to eat. And it's a really good convivial sit down, have a chat, and socialise side. Do you, I imagine you get people who come on the courses and on these expeditions that are vegan or vegetarian. Uh, certainly on the last one we had vegetarian, but we also had somebody who has two or three food intolerances. So it was, on the run-up to it, it was a little bit more complicated on picking out recipes that were going to 
tick the boxes for you know, be filling, nutritious tasting, all the rest of it, but everybody could eat. Uh, but I actually enjoyed doing that, you know, sort of trying to change things around a little bit because you get set in the way of doing the same thing every time. Whereas if you can actually sort of change that, you become a better person anyway because you, you've got another string to your bow as such. Hey, I'm glad we've got this tarp. Yeah. <laughs> it's raining a little bit now. Yeah, just a little bit. Blimey, we only got that little weather window, didn't we? So you run these a couple of times a year? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we've got the, the introduction one is the first weekend in September. That's a three-day course that we run up in Dumfries and Galloway, mainly because it's the easiest access to open water in Scotland where obviously you were allowed to while camp and I think we've over the last few years we've built up a fairly good relationship with the ranger service up there we've met them two or three times and had a good chat with them and so they understand what we're trying to achieve so it's always good to have a chat with them and see where things are and I always contact them beforehand to say that we're coming up is there any particular areas that we need to avoid and say that's an introduction course so that's really for those who maybe haven't done any canoeing or maybe haven't done any bushcraft or done a bit of either of them so it's about that learning that journeying skills so the first day we actually do a a fairly good distance and then make camp and then we can offer things like hammocks and tarps if people want to try those out and the second day we'll actually go a very short distance you could canoe it in probably half an hour but we're going to go around a few of the islands have a look at the islands and such like so it's again it's practicing those skills of packing away the camp leaving it as a you know trace environment resetting the canoes repacking those getting on the water practicing the tandem skills or solo skills as we journey to the next location setting up camp again so people are getting those skills dialed in they are sort of really sort of using them as opposed to come on a day course where they'll do it once and then they might not try practice it for the next six months and then because it's a only a short journey we've got plenty of time throughout the rest of the day to to work on specific skills that people may want to do so either knife work or fire lighting tree id animal tracking or canoeing skills so with the two of us on it we can split the group up if we need to and we always have a a small group we only try to take six people because it just gets too cumbersome and you end up impacting the environment far more by having far too many people on it and the Meg one is a four-day course up between in the, the western Scottish Highlands, uh, so it's more remote. You're more likely to get, in that time of year, poorer weather conditions, so it's a bit more testing. Uh, but we're not trying to test people. Last time we went on it, the first day was a bit wet. The second day was quite windy, so we managed to sail a fair bit of it, so putting in different canoe skills. Third and fourth day were virtually flat calms, stunning sunshine, absolutely glorious. Um, which meant we had to paddle a lot more, which <laughs> with full canoes was a bit of a pain, but there you go, that's life. <laughs> <laughs> and are there any aspects of your work that you really don't like, that you could really do without? Yeah, the admin. <laughs> that's what everyone says, isn't it? Although, you know, with the new website, there's not as much admin to do. I guess doing the tax side of it, keeping the accounts and such like up to date. But if you keep on top of it, it's not too bad. Not like I'm a multinational where there's lots going on. So generally speaking, not really. I suppose it's the packing up the kit afterwards if it's been a wet day. I've got limited space for drying kit. It's a long day, isn't it, if you've been out all day working and then you've got yeah. all the clean-up and everything. But it sounds like sometimes you have a, a day or two in between. Yeah, so with the outdoor centre work, quite often it falls in days of three. An advantage of working at the centres is they've got very good drying rooms. Has your new work-slash-lifestyle turned out how you 
perhaps imagined or expected? What have you kind of learned along the way? I've definitely found in the last 12 months that the new website and having dates on <laughs> for courses 12 months ahead makes a big difference, whereas I was always very lax on actually putting the dates up so that people had plenty of time to find them. Because I don't do a lot of promotion. Having dates available on the website has, has been a, a massive difference. And the ease of booking as well, whereas before it, people used to contact and say, I'd like to come on the course, I would send a booking form out. They would then have to do a bank transfer as opposed to click, fill the form in, paid for it, it's sorted. We all know how easy the internet is to shop on. If you do it right, it's a dream. Uh, so that's made a big difference. Have things gone as you expected? When I first set out on the Outdoor Ed side, I didn't envisage I'd have my own business, small business doing things. I think I probably thought that by the time I was like sort of mid-50s, I'd maybe look for a part-time role. I couldn't work full-time at a centre, but I figured I could probably work part-time at a centre and then sort of... And if it was a local education authority one, maybe the pension would be you know, sort of bumping into my pension as well. But nothing came up. But then I started Red Oak and that's kind of taken the place of it. So it was never a plan to actually say start my own business. Yeah, things have just happened, I guess. And I've gone with it. <laughs> What do you think about the sort of mainstream culture around bushcrafting? Because it's got perhaps a bit of a reputation that it may put some people on and put some people off. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I think to a degree the outdoor industry has. Um, it, 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 traditionally it's always been very male-dominated and certainly that has been the case in bushcraft. But there are more and more very, very talented and skilled uh, women in bushcraft. Uh, which is fantastic to see and I really enjoy working with them. I think it's great that the diversity and it's not just women, it's getting ethnic minorities out into the countryside and into to bushcraft as well. So whatever we can do to increase that is, is vital because everybody's got a part to play. You know, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, uh, what did I think of Bear Grylls? I'd have probably steamed a little bit. Um, <laughs> but actually... The number of kids or adults who've been on one of the courses uh, and have come on going, yeah, Bear Grylls, Bear Grylls, Bear Grylls, but no one's ever said that's not how Bear Grylls does it. They just want to do it, in which case he's doing a fantastic job of getting people out into the countryside and getting people switched on to, to looking at nature, and then it's up to us to take that further and, and feed their enthusiasm more. Do you get some people on these courses or even people who just tell about your work that kind of look at you and just go, but why? Why... Why do people need these skills or why do people want them? Like Not typically on the courses because they've chosen to come. Yeah, they've paid. <laughs> um, certainly not on the, on my courses, but on you know some of the stuff we do through the outdoor centres where maybe they're coming on a year six residential. There's always going to be kids that this is totally alien to and, and actually they're massively out of the comfort zone. Go climb that, go climb that rock face. I'm scared of heights. You know, so make it more accessible. Let's do a little easier scramble to start off with and build the confidence up. So there's always going to be people that aren't, don't get it, but then I don't get playing Fortnite and the Xbox and stuff. It's just not in my league. So it's having that empathy that actually you don't get what I do, I don't get what you do. There must be some common ground somewhere. So let's talk about it and let's see where we can go with it. That's a good approach, I think. But I think also sometimes it takes a while to come round to ideas. You know, someone said to me a few years ago, let's go and have a look at... You know, I'm talking a long time ago, actually. <laughs> let's go and have a look at some trees. And I'll, just be like, I'll probably be thinking, why? <laughs> why can't I just walk past the trees? <laughs> but actually, yeah. there's something. There's really something in it. Yeah, it's, it, 
it's how you approach it. So an example, it's something I tend to do with the, the bushcraft things we do with, uh, in the centres with, for example, year six kids, is I always tend to do uh, a natural string making thing. But you don't say, oh, we're going to make natural string, because you say, we're going to make string to a kid. They go, huh? So we're going to make a survival bracelet that is guaranteed to make you 100% bear and wolf proof in the UK. And the two or three of them will go, there aren't any bears or wolves in the UK, but you've engaged them. Smart kids. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, some of the teachers don't get it. Um, but then you, you go through the process of making a survival bracelet, which is basically just a twisted bit of string. But then they've made something. You've empowered them. You, they physically made something. And some of them may find it really difficult. But then quite often you'll get somebody else from the group going, oh, try this. So they're actually starting to peer mentor each other. So all of a sudden, that dynamic has changed massively just by making a piece of string. And they, they proudly walk away with their survival bracelet on. I remember making one when I did the bushcrafting course when I was training to be a leader. I remember, I remember making that. And I also remember that the best part about the course was meeting other people mm. and helping each other. Like There was a man who, was, who really took the time to show me how to do some of the knots because I was really struggling to put up the tarp with mm. the knots and he he took me aside and he wasn't you know he wasn't one of the trainers he was just an, another of the group members like me yeah and it's it's things like that that you really remember yeah it's the conversations around the campfire on the sort of our day courses in the woods lunchtime you start having sort of more of a conversation about what you do what other courses do you do and and you know it's a two-way process and there's always somebody who's got something a little snippet that you you weren't aware of before because everybody's got vast experience in some form or other. And it's just tapping into it and having those conversations. You say around the campfire is the best place to do it, when people are relaxed. Do you feel that your work is meaningful and holds value for people, and perhaps particularly when comparing it to your previous career in IT? Oh, definitely more value than that, yeah. Uh, yes, I hope so, and uh, but I believe so, yeah, because people do genuinely seem to get a lot out of it. I'm getting more people now who are booking because it's been a recommendation. In that case, it must have touched the right spot as opposed to just doing an internet search. Um, if it's a recommendation, then fantastic. And there's, there's two or three people who are regular customers who came from recommendations. What were the first steps that you took with setting up Red Oak? Registering the domain name. Well, actually trying to work out a name for it. I came up with a name which then my friend Dave, who I say worked for, said, oh, you might want to contact this guy because he's got a very similar name. And I contacted him and he said, yeah, that's my name, go away. Uh, so I changed it. Um, but that was before we had the website up, so that wasn't an issue anyway. Uh, and it was the right thing to do. Uh, so that was definitely the first thing, trying to find somewhere to, to work from. So at that time, I knew somebody who, who had access to a wooden not far from Buxton, and he was happy for me to use it you know, for, for, for money. So that was the starting point. And then... It's about 18 months I've been using that when I bumped into somebody, uh, a ranger for the forestry, forestry England in the Goy Valley, and said, do you offer, do you allow people to do these sort of things in your woodlands? He says, yeah, definitely. So here's the person you need to speak to. I looked at it and thought, I know you. I used to work with you. <laughs> so she used to work at one of the outdoor centres, oh, so wow. I emailed her. And she said, oh, yeah, absolutely, no problem. I've got two or three that might be worth looking at. Uh, 
these are them, you know, go have a wander and we can arrange to meet. And so I found the one that we use now and, you know, we set it up and it wasn't like sort of, because I knew her, it wasn't a case of, you know, you get it, you know, I had to jump through the hoops correctly and each year we have to, but it was just, you know, one of those ones that just seemed to fall into place again that was really useful. So getting our own woodland was really useful. And then the the work I'd done with Dave of Woodland Survival Crafts, uh, say who I work for still, had given me ideas for formats for courses that I wanted to work on. Uh, so it was just a case of getting those out and then trying to sort of publicise them and get them out there. And how I actually managed that, I'm not sure, because I didn't do a, exactly do a lot of promoting. I think it was just one of those ones that the website worked and I, I got somebody to build the original website, but I couldn't actually change that much of it, which is where the, the big drawback was. So, you know, so it was just building up business after that and then thinking about ways to make the courses better. So the the only course that stayed the same is our Introduction to Bushcraft course. That hasn't changed at all. We run it every month apart from January and February because we want to give the woodland a bit of time to you know, sort of recover from, from being used. But so far, March, April, May, I think we've got one place in June, two in July. You know, everything else is fully booked up. Wow, that's incredible. Um, because it's a relatively inexpensive course, but it's fairly straightforward to run. Uh, and from that, hopefully, sort of people will choose to come on other things. It's fair to say that most people come on an introduction course, and we probably only get maybe 10, 15% come on other courses. But, you know, if it's getting people out and it's engaging them in something uh, for a day as opposed to sitting at home or going to the pub, then or giving them a reason to go at the pub. <laughs> I saw that you um, welcome stag hen and stag dues, which I think is quite brave. <laughs> uh, we don't have many. In, I've probably only done about eight or nine, but it's very much a case of no alcohol, because if Smart. we're using things like knives, <laughs> yeah. I can't afford to. Yeah. Uh, and my public liability would be invalid if somebody was drunk. Yeah. I have had ones... I've had one that almost I thought was going to go pear shape when they turned up and there should have been 12 i think there was eight because four of them still hadn't actually got up because they'd only gone to bed at six in the morning out of the ones that got out of the cars two went back into the car straight away and fell asleep because they were still too drunk one fell asleep behind a shelter that the other five had made and slept for three hours and the other five were fully engaged and loved it so the other ones kind of wasted the money but it made my life easy. <laughs> yeah, because you only had five people who, yeah. were, who were loving it. But most people who tend to want to come on that sort of thing, I've had some absolutely fantastic ones where they've all been, you know, a variety of ages, they're all into the outdoors anyway, they just wanted something different to get around, you know, sit around a campfire with a few friends and then they were going to go out and have a few beers and a, a curry in the evening, in which case it ticked all the boxes and it was great. And so where did the name Red Oak come from in the end? <laughs> well, I wanted I something to do with trees and all the other tree names have been taken. Oh, right. <laughs> wow. There's a lot of trees. That's, that's I literally impressive. went through a tree book. Uh, an elm, yeah, oak, oak obviously, is, is just going to have gone anyway. I, I looked at things like tadpole and just, just I thought, Amazon, you know, what's that got to do with what they were doing at the time? Absolutely nothing. So it could be any word at all. But eventually just came across in the tree book Red Oak. And I thought, I'll try that one. Yeah, Red Oak's okay. So I got Red Oak UK, redoakbushcrafts.co.uk. And then, oddly enough, when I got this woodland from Forestry England, 
one of the main trees in that woodland is the red oak. I, I told you, things just fall into place for you. <laughs> it's incredible. <laughs> it took me six months to realise, because <laughs> I got it in the November, so there was absolutely no leaves on the trees at all. So when they started coming out, I thought, hold on a minute. This is your standard English oak or pendicular. So. It's a great method, though, for coming up with a name, because it, it can be one of the hardest things and biggest blocks mm. for people to think of something, yeah, that's just, like, completely unique. I also didn't want it to be, like, tied to my name, because somebody else might want to take it on when I retire, in which case it's nothing to do with me anymore. I can live on if need be. What do you think your family and friends think of what you do? Oh, most of my uh, family, most of my friends are from a similar background anyway. So we've, you know, typically we're all outdoors sorts of people. In which case, they could probably see it coming. Some of them who have, you know came through scouting with are probably thinking you're making money out of what we used to play at. How how do you do that? Do you think that for people who are thinking about a career change, a really big career change, and haven't got that background? sort of confidence, people around them who are into outdoors life, do you think it, it means that it's much harder for them to begin from that place? I guess it, it dep- if they want to get into the outdoors, they're going to need some sort of background. Uh, so a, a friend of mine who used to be uh, in the ranger service, Pete Park Ranger Service, is... is left there and is doing a lot of volunteering one of the outdoor centres to to gain some experience to become more employable and quite often when I was setting out in the outdoors I went along to centres to introduce myself and sort of shadow on a few days so give my time up um, to to learn how they did things at the centre uh, and that gets you in through the door a bit more but certainly having those qualifications so in climbing canoeing caving whatever will make you more employable because it just shows that actually you have a depth of knowledge as opposed to them having to take you out and see what you physically do quite often they'll shadow you and, and just make sure that you're, you're ticking all of the right boxes for the safety side of it uh, but most times they'll just leave you to it because you have that bit of paper that says, yes, you can do these things. Do you train people up to do what you do? I'd, I'd like to think my, my bushcraft courses are training courses anyway, but they're not qualified training courses such. Uh, but I'm a trainer for Dave Watson of Woodland Survival Crafts for the Institute of Outdoor Learning's Bushcraft Competency Certificate. Wow, that's a mouthful, isn't it? It is rather. <laughs> and I'm also assessor for that as well. Yeah, uh, we do have sort of... I do do some... Qualifi- they're not qualifications, they are awards as opposed to sort of run by Ofqual. And do you also hire people to work for Red Oak? Sometimes. I, I try to keep the course number small, so most of the courses are a maximum of eight people, except for the canoes, which is six. That you lead and run mostly, yeah. yeah. So that can be done by one person, but Nicola, the wife, uh, tends to come on the intro courses because she enjoys doing them as well, but also it means we get some time together if it's a weekend thing. So quite often Nick comes along. I don't need to employ people that much, but for the lacto-fermentation course that I mentioned earlier and the uh, bone tools course, yes, I'm employed. I'm bringing skills in to do that so who will give a, a better quality course than I would. Excellent. It's a lot of work for you, isn't it? Feels like it at times. <laughs> but if you once you've got things in place, it all flows. So it's having... For each course, I've got a session plan, I've got a kit list, so that course is coming up, I get the session plan out, and I tick off the kit list as I get the kit ready. So it it becomes easier. As long as you're organised, it becomes easier. And do you feel like you have a good 
standard of living. It needed a bit of outlay to start off with, but because I was only doing a small amount of courses, it didn't need as much. So as I've increased the courses, because I'm able to increase courses, I'm earning more money, so therefore I could put more in to actually be able to sort of do that. And most of the kit isn't a stupid price. You know, you're obviously not going to buy really cheap rubbish stuff, but, you know, bushcraft knives can start at like sort of eight pounds for a simple one. And so if we're doing a tool session, yes, I'll need a selection of knives, but I'll probably only buy five to start off with. And then as we get more people wanting to do things and we're looking at different age groups and such like, we'll need to diversify so we'll get knives that are more suitable size-wise for children to use. It's, it's, it's building things up. So it's never been a massive cost. And because I'm sort of increasing the courses and getting people on them I can afford to do it. When people are thinking about a career change I think one of the biggest concerns understandably is the questions around how much you can earn and if you need to change like your standard of living as such. I guess it's where you're coming from so it was certainly a drop by at least a third from doing IT to coming into the outdoor industry by at least a third if not more but much better standard of quality of living, uh, quality of life. So, you know, sort of the fact I was around more to be with the kids as they were growing up was massive. And then, obviously, sort of mine and Nicola's love of the outdoors has rubbed off on the kids. So she's involved with forest schools and things? Yeah, she does forest schools at uh, Books and Junior School. She started off when Leo went there, so she went in to do sort of reading stuff and then sort of got pulled to one side and said, do you want some hours? Uh, and then there was somebody came to offer some forest school sessions for their forest school qualification and, and Nick offered to help. And then Nick went and did the training and then Nick ended up with it. So she's now doing three days, three afternoons a week uh, doing forest school at school. So it can be a little bit typecast at times, but it's again, it's very rewarding when it, it works. And it's massively important to get that sort of age group of kid outdoors and playing in the mud I know it's not just playing in the mud but you know, just <laughs> just getting out and doing it because quite often now kids are far too sanitised yeah I don't remember that as a kid I think it was more just about we did cross country running and that was about yeah. it I mean I grew up on a farm so I spent loads of time in mud yeah. but most people did <laughs> at my school so I was lucky because <laughs> yeah. it was just my home life but <laughs> but you know, the number of times we get kids coming to the outdoors now who don't want to touch things uh, and it's a big step for them to actually get their hands dirty. <laughs> this last week on Tuesday, we were did a walk on Tuesday evening in the Howling Gales up to Hollins Cross, along to Back Tour, and then back down again. And that path down to back from Back Tour to the bottom of the dirty lane—that's evil. Yeah, nightmare. <laughs> and, uh, and Can't get any traction on it. But they <laughs> were going down. They were all <laughs> laughing their heads off because they were slipping over, getting filthy. It's great. That's what kids do. <laughs> yeah. That's what kids should do. <laughs> That's why you shouldn't wear white trainers in the Peak District. Oh, we give them walking boots anyway. So. <laughs> Do you create as much free time as as you can? In the in the last two, three years, probably not. I think I'm getting a bit better at it with the balance between what I'm doing at the weekends and what I'm doing during the week. The negative of that is that because Nick is working five days a week, that doesn't always equate to us spending time together. But I think I'm getting better at it. I'm trying to do a course on a Saturday, a course on a Sunday, so that the next weekend I haven't got one. But then it says, Lord, somebody will get in touch and say, 
can you do as Gorson and don't like turning them down? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We always make sure we take holidays. In the summer, we always take two weeks. We'll take weekends here and there as well, wherever possible. But it doesn't tend to work out that much. Lastly. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and I haven't given you... I normally ask you to think about this in advance, but um, I completely forgot. <laughs> <laughs> so you're going to have to... I'm going to put you on the Oof. spot. <laughs> what question would you ask somebody who is thinking about leaving something like being an IT manager and doing something completely new that is perhaps going to be more in line with how they really enjoy spending their time. Have you made some contacts? Do you know people? Because if you know people, you've got some you've automatically got some sort of support network. You can ask them for advice, but if you don't know anybody in the industry, you're you're on your own whereas i guess when i was coming to my conclusion about going into the outdoors i spoke to people in the mountain rescue team and i spoke to friends who were, were climbers who did that as well so i had people i could actually question about how things worked and, and how the easiest way to make it work for me so definitely how do you know people have you got contacts use them in the first five years of, of going freelance i was flabbergasted how in theory, my competition, so the other freelance instructors were all in competition with each other, in theory, how free they were with their knowledge of, uh, and you know, sort of taking me caving to get me to the point I could leave, you know, go and do my caving qualifications, when I'm a com- competitor in theory. And it's the same in the bushcraft industry. People are just enthusiastic about upskilling people and, and giving stuff away, and which is phenomenal. You know, I can't imagine other businesses doing that here come and sh- see how we do this yeah. it just doesn't seem to equate but the outdoor centers do it as well they'll go around to each other and say you know sort of how do you handle this sort of thing what what issues you found with that and and they work together there's enough work out there you know, it's not like we have to be competitive there's plenty of work out there so let's make it a symbiotic relationship Mm, that's a great question have you got any contacts if not go make some yeah <laughs> yeah you've got to put yourself out there it helped me yeah definitely that was that's the thing that's helped me most is just yeah going and speaking to people yeah and sometimes it's even led to work if, yeah. you know maybe not straight away but down the line which is yeah just incredible mm. so many people get stuck behind the laptop and yeah. just see all the barriers and yeah, it's, it feels so much better when you go out and you speak to people, especially if, you, if there's yeah. only people you know, that makes it a lot Yeah, Definitely easier. speak to people, don't just email. When I was the IT manager, the email package at the time would, you know, you'd send an email, you get reply and it'd go re, as a, a reply with the title in it, and then if you replied back it'd go re, re, and it would go re. So if you get, ever get above two re's, go and talk to the bugger <laughs> who's sat in the office next to you, because you're just wasting each other's time. Yeah. And you would see emails with re 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 re, re in the title. It's just, no, go and talk to them. At that point, there was the BT saying, it's good to talk. And it definitely is. <laughs> yeah, I agree. <sighs> well, <laughs> thank you for bringing this tarp, because Pleasure. I don't know what we would have done <laughs> if we didn't have a tarp over us. I think shivered a bit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> probably bailed into my house <laughs> thank you for bringing the poles that I forgot <laughs> <laughs>
Well, you it? certainly inspired me. I really want to go and get myself a tarp now. Stop and have yeah. a break. <laughs> it's what we say to people when they come on the family. We do a family day, and it's very much family as opposed to drop the kids off and, and run away. But we always say, you know, if you're going out for day walks, take a tarp with you, because all of a sudden you make it an adventure. And if they've been involved in actually setting it up today, they might remember a few bits. But yeah, it becomes an adventure. You, it doesn't have to be a wet day. You're just making a window that you're looking out of to see what's going on while you're sitting there. And they, you know, they pack away to virtually nothing. There's so many different tarps out there, it's well worth doing. Definitely, yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get myself one. Go for it. Yeah. Thank you for listening to About the Adventure podcast. Have a look at redoakbushcrafts.co.uk for more info on their courses and canoe trips. Massive thanks to Peter for sharing his story with us and for bringing along a tarp. Until next time.